0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The strong man and the spoiling of his house, taken from Luke chapter 11, Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphian Video. Now this parable is explained by Brother Roger Lewis. The parable is explained and verified by carefully comparing with other Bible references. It portends the ultimate victory of the conqueror who triumphed over the strong man of sin. The wonder of God's provision is in providing a saviour who showed us how to conquer by absorbing the mind of Christ.
1: We're going to look this evening at this little parable in Luke chapter 11, which we might describe as the binding of the strong man and the spoiling of his house. Now that parable is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. And at first sight, it seems to be the same parable. But I think when we look more closely at the text, it suggests that that Luke's account is set at a different time to the other two. It's clearly worded in a different way. And in fact, noticing those differences adds to our appreciation of the richness and the detail of, of what it was that the Lord was teaching. So our study tonight is gonna be based upon Luke's account, but we will briefly cross to the other gospels along the way. Now, there was of course a background to the parable. There's always a background to the parables and finding that context is the key to properly interpret the mystery of who the strong man might be and what the spoiling of his house might involve. So do you notice what the record says here in Luke 11? Uh, Reading from verse 14, it says, And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. The word devil here is daemonian, the demon. And Matthew actually says that this man was both blind and dumb. In other words, he was so damaged by the extent of his affliction that people were amazed at the success of Christ. They were astonished that he was able to heal such a tragic case. Well, at least some of the people were amazed, but not everybody. Because do you notice that the next verse says, verse 15, But some of them said he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And it was a hateful, a spiteful insinuation. And it didn't just come from anyone. Because Mark's gospel tells us in Mark 3 verse 22, and the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, he hath Beelzebub. And by the prince of devils, he casteth out devils. You see, they couldn't dispute the miracle itself. So they were forced instead to discredit or try and discredit how the Lord might have accomplished it. And it wasn't just a false suggestion. It was a very foolish one, as the Lord would show, because what they proclaimed, what they suggested, in fact, defied logic and common sense. It was the suggestion of those who were desperate to discredit the Lord's power, because the one thing that they could not bring themselves to admit was that it might be from God Himself. And I think there's an implication in the gospel records when we read them carefully that, in in fact, they didn't say these words in verse 15 directly to Christ. I think what they did is they mingled with the multitude. And insidiously, surreptitiously, they whispered the idea from ear to ear, from person to person, that the Lord was in league with the devil. Didn't say that out loud to the Lord. In fact, Matthew says, he perceiving their thoughts answered them. It was a blatant endeavor to undermine the work of the Father in the Son. Now you notice in verse 15, the record says, it uses the word Beelzebub, but the Greek has Beelzebul, finishing with an L and not a B. And the word Beelzebul means literally Lord of the house. And I think what follows in Christ's words is a deliberate allusion to the meaning of that name. In fact, the Jews use the term as a title to represent the power of Satan, Beelzebub, that which is opposed to God and his ways. Well, now the Lord's going to answer that unjust insinuation. And so he says this in verse 17. It says, but he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against a house
2: falleth. You see, nations,
1: a kingdom, and families, a house, do not deliberately embark upon a course of self-destruction Civil war in a kingdom and sibling rivalry in a family can only ever be destructive to their future. Both can only prosper when everyone lives in harmony. So to suggest that Christ used the power of Satan to overthrow the kingdom of Satan was to argue that Satan fought against his own realm. Now, Satan, of course, means adversary, but he would hardly be an adversary to himself. And so the Lord says in Luke 11, verse 18, If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils by by Beelzebub. Why would Satan seek to publicly demolish his own kingdom? in the sight of others. Oh no, there was a much better explanation, says the Lord. If Satan's kingdom was under threat, it clearly was because another kingdom had challenged it. And notice how Christ says, because ye say that I cast out devils by by Beelzebul. In other words, he replied by using their own argument to show its fundamental weakness and its fatal flaw. Actually, Mark says in Mark 3, verse 23, called them unto him and said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And that teaching by parables will lead us eventually into the parable of the binding of the strong man and the spoiling of his house, which will follow shortly in this record. And so Jesus says in verse 19, Luke 11, verse 19, And if I by Beelzebul cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. Now, evidently in these times, there were certain Jews who pretended to exorcise demons, and they probably did it for financial gain. We read of one such account in Luke 9, verse 49, when it says, John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. There's another one in Acts 19, verse 13, when it says, and certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, And there were seven sons of one Sceba, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. So here were protégés of the Jewish leaders who performed such wonders. They were probably encouraged by the Pharisees themselves, who enjoyed the influence and the recognition it brought them. They had wonder workers at their disposal, but they never suggested that these miracle workers, that these ones were in league with Satan. So here was the problem, you see, they either had to admit that these miracles by their own followers proved that they also were working with Satan, which is what they're claiming of the Lord. Or they had to admit they were fraudulent. Or they had to concede that there might be, in fact, must be a higher power which made such miracles possible. And it was that higher power which the Lord was claiming as he made evident in the very next verse. Because Jesus says in verse 20, but if I, he says, with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. Now, interestingly, the record in Matthew says, but if I, Matthew 12 verse 28 says, but if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. And that was true as to the power that Christ wielded, that was the spirit of God that that the Lord used. But the record in Luke shows that Christ used a different expression because Luke says that the Lord said, if I with the finger of God cast out devils, and that was a deliberate Old Testament allusion. You see, in the days of Moses, the magicians of Egypt tried to copy his plagues. But when it came to the plague of the lice, they couldn't. They found it impossible to duplicate. And they confessed their inability to do the same thing. And, and these were the words they used to confess their inability to copy Moses. Exodus 8, verse 19. So in you margin, it says, Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh this, is the finger of God. In other words, they acknowledged that this miracle was beyond human power to perform, that it could only be accounted for on the basis of divine intervention. And it was this phrase that Christ would use in his answer to the scribes in Luke chapter 11. What a splendid passage for the Lord to allude to in his response to those who could only pretend to copy his works of healing. So what then did his his own miraculous cures indicate? Well, he says so at the end of verse 20. He says, if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. So what did the Lord mean when he said that, brothers and sisters? In what way could he say that by this means the kingdom of God had come upon them? Well, I suggest that the answer is that in Luke's gospel, particularly in Luke's gospel, the term kingdom of God is often a reference to Christ himself. Let's just come back and look at just two or three of those, just to establish that connection. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 9, the record says that the Lord said to his disciples, heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. It was a reference, in fact, to himself, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in in Luke 11, we're going to have the same thing, verse 20. If I I perform miracles, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh, that, That is a reference to the manifestation of Jesus Christ in their midst. Luke chapter 17 says in verses 20 and 21, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, He answered and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is among you, he says. Right now, it was among them because he himself was there. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. And in Luke chapter 21 and verse 31, the record will say, so likewise, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand." And right there and right now, the royal majesty of the kingdom was in their midst, brothers and sisters, in the form of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the cures that Christ effected were but a taste of the powers that he would command in the kingdom age itself. The reality of the kingdom of God had come upon them in the form of its
2: king. The challenge was, would
1: they recognize it and bow before him? Actually, notice what it does say in Luke 11 verse 20, just reading that last phrase a little more carefully. He says, if I have done such things by the finger of God, then no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. But that little phrase, come upon you, Epheson Ephheimus means literally to come before, to arrive ahead. It's the same word in the 1st of Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 15 when it says that that we which which are uh, here and now will not prevent, not go before those who are asleep in Christ. So this was a a special warning you see to the Jewish people. Theirs was the first opportunity to submit to the king. It's come before you, ahead of everyone else. But there would be others to follow from the Gentiles who might be more prompt in their response to acknowledge the king than the Jews themselves, and herein lay the challenge of Christ. And now, finally, in Luke's gospel, we will come to the parable of the strong man and his house. But before we examine Luke's account, we need to read what the other synoptics record in the wording of this particular parable. And we're going to take the synoptic record from Mark's account in Mark chapter 3. So come back with me if you would to Mark chapter 3, and let's just see Mark's record now, similar to Matthew's in terms of what they say about the parable of the strong man. So here it is in Mark chapter three and reading from verse 27, the record says, no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. Now, do you know there's something interesting to notice here, brothers and sisters, is that this parable is not quite what it seems. You see, this is not a parable about the plunder of theft. It's a parable about the spoils of war. You see, the thief broken to steal in the night while the householder lay asleep. But the conqueror defeated his opponent in the day and then took goods which were the spoils of victory, You see, the strong man in this parable was wide awake when the invader came. He stood ready to repel him. He stood ready to safeguard what was his. No house of a strong man could ever be robbed unless the strong man had first been beaten in contest and tied up tight. Now, of course, the strong man in the parable is symbolic. Who ultimately had the ability to hold all humankind in thrall? Who ruled as master, commanding the absolute obedience of all his subjects? Who finally possessed the power of death? There could be only one answer. This was sin, King Sin, the princely power of King Sin, personified here as the strong man of the parable. And if that was so, and the king's sin were the strong man, then the goods in the strong man's house were actually people. People bound by the grip of sickness, people bound by their bias towards sin, and people finally bound by death in the grave. Now, the point of the Lord's parable was that his miracles of healing proved that he'd already taken some of the goods from the strong man's house, and he could only have done so if he had the power to bind the strong man. His healings were the proof. It was an irrefutable claim. And what's interesting is that this parable of Christ, we believe, had an Old Testament background where the ideas of the binding of the strong man and the spoiling of his house were both to be found. So if you come back to the Old Testament record for a moment, to Isaiah chapter 49, we suggest that this was the passage that the Lord was using as the basis for this parable uh, in Luke chapter 11 and in the other synoptic records. Because in Isaiah 49 and reading verse 24, we, we come across these words. It says there, Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captive delivered? But the Hebrew word for prey here, Malkoach, is the Old Testament equivalent for the New Testament word. Spoil, teraparzo, it literally means plunder. Both words mean the same thing. And the word mighty here in verse 24 of Isaiah 49, gibor means fundamentally a strong man. And now suddenly the illusion is clearer. In effect, what the prophet cries in Isaiah 49 verse 24 is, Shall the spoil be taken from the strong man? And reading from the Revised Standard Version, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? And here's the very basis, we suggest, of the Lord's parable, which we're looking at in the Gospels. And the prophet gave the answer to his question in the very next verse, when he said these words in Isaiah 49, verse 25, But thus saith Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. Now, you see, in Isaiah's day, the reference of Isaiah 49, verse 25, was to the power of Babylon. That would take Israel into captivity, a captivity that seemed irreversible, into a bondage that seemed unbreakable, and yet declared the prophet, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered, says the prophet. Against all odds, the strong man would be overpowered, and those under his sway would be delivered. Now, how could this possibly be so? Well, says the record in Isaiah, God alone had the power to do so. And so he says in this verse, I will contend, I will save. So Yahweh sent one who was stronger than the strong man of Babylon and his people were delivered. But that rescue out of Babylon was a foreshadowing of the final triumph. Yahweh took his son whom he made strong for himself and sent him to do battle with the most powerful strong man of all, the power of sin and death. And now, see how Luke's own account of this parable will now draw on Isaiah and enrich these ideas. So, if you come back now to, to Luke chapter 11, and to verse 21, let's now look at Luke's record, Luke's own account of this parable of the strong man. This is how Luke writes about the parable. Luke 11 verse 21 says, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Actually, in the Greek, it's the words Ho escuros, the strong man. When the strong man keeps his palace, you see, he is the strongest of them all. Sin personified as a mighty man, an invincible champion, a strong man who has hitherto never, never once been beaten in battle. And he's more than just a strong man. Because this verse says he's described here as a strong man armed. The Revised Standard Version says fully armed. He's ready to do battle with any who might strive to enter his house. In fact, even the word keepeth here in verse 21, fulasso to guard, means to keep by way of protection. So the strong man has a palace filled with his goods, which he keeps under lock and key. And so secure is his palace, so strong the guard, that his goods are safe and secure, which is probably what the word peace really means in this place. But in reality,
2: for those checked within his palace, it felt more like the bondage of a prison house.
1: And then verse 22 says, but when a stronger than he shall come upon him. Now, what a marvelous expression, brothers and sisters. When a stronger than he shall come. Do you know the world had waited for this man from the days of the Garden of Eden Sin entered the world and immediately held all within its grip and kept all under its guard. There was no way out of the strong man's palace until our Lord came. And what he did was to prove that he was stronger than the strong man. In fact, this is how it's described, that contest in Hebrews chapter 2, which we shan't turn up, but Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 says... For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy. Weymouth says, render powerless. Rotherham says that he might paralyze him that had the power of death. That is the devil and deliver them, release them, free them, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Do you think the world had waited for this man, brothers and sisters? We'd all waited for him. And because he was stronger, he overcame the strong man and reached right into his palace to spoil his goods. In fact, the verse says in Luke 11, verse twenty one, 22, when a stronger than he shall come upon him, he shall overcome him. And the word overcome nikeo, means, of course, to conquer and prevail. And that's exactly what our Lord did. John 16, verse 33 says, in the world, ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In Revelation 3, verse 21, it says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame, and am set down with my father in his throne. You see, this is what the Lord had come to do. His great mission was to overcome the strong man in his own house and to take something from him as the verse goes on to say, verse 22, not only shall he overcome him, but he will take from him all his armor wherein he trusteth. Now, it's interesting that that word armor in the Greek is the word panoplia. It literally means full armor. It's the word used incidentally in Ephesians 6, verse 11 and verse 13, where it's translated whole armour. And Vine says of the Greek word panoplia, it says, among the Greeks, the panoplia was the complete equipment used by heavily armed infantry. See, this strong man was covered in armour from top to toe. He was armed to the teeth, and yet he'd been defeated.
2: And the proof of his defeat was
1: that all that armor wherein he trusted had been taken by another, the stronger than he. Now, that is a Bible echo, isn't it, brothers and sisters, that reminds us, don't you think, of, of another time and another circumstance when a man took the armor of he whom he had defeated. Now, whereabouts is that in the record? It's in the first of Samuel, chapter 17. Come back to the battle of David and Goliath and and just notice how beautifully the record of, of David's conquest of Goliath is clearly one of the Old Testament passages that our Lord must have had in mind as he gave the parable of the strong man in Luke chapter 11. So the record says, and perhaps reading First of Samuel 17, verse 50 for connection, it says there, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword, took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. So, how was David introduced to the nation of Israel? And the answer is why is the man who was stronger than the strong man? and able to bind him. And when David did that, the effect upon his own people was absolutely electric. You see, they saw that the champion of the flesh, the Gabor of the strong man, was utterly defeated. And in that moment, they were transformed from those gripped by the despair of facing inevitable bondage, to those who now were contemplating freedom from their oppressor. And that's what Samuel goes on to say, verse 52 of 1st of Samuel 17 says the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until they are come to the valley and to the gates of Ekron, and the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way to Shaaraim, even unto Gath and unto Ekron. And suddenly the whole nation was emboldened to fight with their hero, David, whose example inspired them. In fact, verse 53 says, the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines and they spoiled their tents. You know, you you could rightly and justly understand that David might have claimed the spoils of war that day as rightfully his, don't you think? To the victor, the spoils? After all, it was he who had slain the strong man. And yet the record says in Samuel that David was content on that day not to take all to himself, but to share the spoils of victory with the people. They spoiled their tents, says the record. But do you notice what David did claim? He wanted two things for himself. And so we're told in verse 54, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. He took the head of the strong man and buried it in the city where the final victory against sin would be fought and won. The skull of Goliath probably came to rest at Golgotha, the place of the skull. You see, David recognized that his victory over the giant was a foreshadowing of the battle that the Lord would win against the strong man of sin in that very place. But verse 54 also says, did you notice?
2: And he put his armor in
1: his tent, he took Goliath's armor, all six pieces of it, and placed it in his tent as the proof of his victory. It was the armor wherein Goliath had trusted, but it failed to deliver him from David's stone. Now, here surely was the very scripture that Christ had in mind and how encouraged he must have been by David's marvellous victory against all the odds. In fact, Christ, when he made quotation from this episode, said, this is what Luke says, When a stronger than he shall come upon and overcome, he taketh from him all his armour wherein he trusteth. All oh, yes, bones and sisters, I think the Lord had David's story in mind, don't you think? So he was a champion, just like David, who was prepared to share the rewards of his victory, because the Lord went on to say, he taketh from him all his armour, and divideth his spoils. And I wonder whether the Lord had another Old Testament passage in mind, and a famous one at that, when he added those words, and divideth the spoils. Now, where's that from, brothers and sisters? Isn't that Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53? Come and have a look at the last two verses of Isaiah 53, because I think we can hear in the Lord's words a further allusion to this famous prophecy about his own sacrificial suffering and death. Now, here's what it says in Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he's poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. you see it's such an astonishing end to the prophecy of Isaiah 53 isn't it brothers and sisters it's all about submission and suffering about sorrow and death and yet suddenly the chapter ends with the victory march of the triumphant warrior who shares the spoils of his amazing victory with those who are associated with him, the many who marching in his strength have associated with him in the battle, just as the Israelites did with David in his day. And it's this phrase out of Isaiah 53, he shall divide the spoil that's woven into Luke's account of the binding of the strong man and the spoiling of his house. That's how Luke will conclude the parable when he says in Luke 11, verse 22, he taketh from him all his armour wherein he trusteth and divideth his spoils. But but now come back to Luke's gospel and see how he draws the final exhortation out of this story for the purposes of the Lord's hearers in the Lord's own time. Back in Luke chapter 11, we read these words, and I think they're absolutely connected with the parable. The parable seems to finish in Luke 11, verse 22, but not quite so, I think, because in Luke 11, verse 23, the Lord then said, he that is not with me is against me, and he that Gathereth not with me, scattereth. Now these words are taken from Brother John Carter's book, Parables of the Messiah, in his brief comments on this parable in pages 81 and 82. Brother Carter put it this way. In commenting on this verse, he that's not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Brother Carter said, Sin was strong, but not invincible. There was a stronger than he who could bind him as a captive and liberate his captives. The power of Jesus to do it was shown in the removal by him then and there of the effects of Satan's power over the demoniac. But since the work of Jesus is thus seen to be related to the conflict of sin and righteousness in the world, men are not allowed to be neutrals. To espouse the cause of righteousness is a duty. Neutrality is a help to the enemy. The Pharisees accused Jesus of alliance with Satan. His rejoinder is a warning. Jesus clearly was in opposition to Satan since he had destroyed Satan's works. If the Pharisees were not with Jesus,
2: they must be on Satan's side. It was
1: a terrible counterthrust, says Brother Carter. You see, the Lord had already proved that he was stronger than Satan and opposed him. But now what the Lord is really saying in verse 23 is, if you're not on my side, then you're on Satan's side, was the blunt answer of Christ. And what a call to arms the Lord's statement is. Whose side are we on, brothers and sisters? Now, you've just come to the end of the day. When on Sunday we come to memorialize what Christ has accomplished. Well, we do come to the table of the Lord, brothers and sisters. We come to remember and to celebrate that Christ was stronger than the strong man of sin and death. And that if he wasn't there, brothers and sisters, where would we be? We come to confess at that table that we've been unable to bind the strong man and that our Lord is the only man who's ever been able to overcome the power of sin. And part of the power of the memorials is that it enables us to re- reaffirm every week that we can't do it, but that we wish to declare our association with the man who has. It's a matter of wonder and praise to recognize that not only did Christ render the strong man powerless but he advanced into the very citadel of Satan. And from his palace, he led captivity captive. And that work of deliverance brings such a sense of relief to those who are burdened by sin, that it is as real as the opening of a prison door to the long incarcerated prisoner. But the real wonder of his work, brothers and sisters, as this little little parable concludes, is that our Lord, is prepared to divide with us the spoils. That he invites us to share in his triumph over the strong men. But he also asks us, verse 23, to join him in the battle. He will only divide the spoils with those who have followed him in the way. So how do we do that? How do we honour what our Lord has achieved? You see, we will never bind the strong man in the way that Christ did. It's important that we recognise that his work was unique. He was God's special, strong one. He was endowed with gifts. He was imbued with powers that no other man or woman would ever have. It was done once and for all time in the work of Christ. But what he did is set an example for us to follow so that his sacrifice is one of representation and not substitution. We honor Christ, brothers and sisters, by trying to understand how he bound the strong man and then seeking to emulate him despite our lesser powers. So the question is, as we move from the parable To the practical, how did Christ bind the strong man, the power of the diabolos, in his own life? Well, this is what he did. He filled his mind with his father's thinking and his father's will, and he exhibited a strong bias towards obedience and righteousness. He used the word as a weapon to triumph. In those moments in his life, when he felt the power and the pull of the strong man, he was in all points tempted like as we are, says Hebrews, yet without sin. He never once succumbed. He never once yielded. He never once was enticed because the thinking of the spirit so dominated his mind as to rule it. Well, this is the process that we've got to try and emulate. We'll fall short of his victory, brothers and sisters, but we've got to try and copy him all the same.
2: So now think of a sin that besets you, one that you've struggled with in the past. We've all got them, brothers and sisters. Can you think of a sin
1: that's gripped you in your life? Now think of the most powerful Bible verses that confront that sin and teach what God really desires.
2: Then write those verses
1: out and memorize them and recite them until they're ingrained in your thinking. Know what the first triggers towards that sin are in your own life and practice bringing the sword of the spirit into combat by referring to those verses to rebut the thought and redirect your attention to a better path. And do it as soon as the moment arises and not a moment later. Develop a bias towards obeying God, a desire to love righteousness
2: and hate wickedness. Now, will we fail?
1: Of course we will. But we will know nevertheless that we're walking in the footsteps of our Lord and we will strive to march with him in this battle until the kingdom comes. How much better will the kingdom age be when the strong one of God will reign and sin will be so greatly diminished that godliness can flourish. Christ invites us, by the way, to join us in that work in the age to come, to be with him. But notice how wonderfully that work is described in the apocalypse. If you come to Revelation chapter 20, we're told this in Revelation chapter 20, and and suddenly there's just one little phrase that, that jumps Out of the narrative that reminds us of the story of our parable this evening. Revelation chapter 20 says in verse 1 And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. And bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. So the work of the saints in the kingdom will be to assist Christ in restricting and subduing the power of sin. But it's a work described in these words, says verse 2, he laid hold on that old serpent Satan and bound him a thousand years. And as soon as we hear that phrase in Revelation chapter 20, our minds immediately, do they not, brothers and sisters, go back to Mark chapter three, verse 27. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he will first bind the
2: strong man. He is an echo of that
1: parable in the book of the Apocalypse to show that the work of binding which the Lord commenced in the victory of his first advent will be continued throughout the kingdom age until finally the strong man of sin is fully overthrown. But we won't be invited to work with him in binding the power of sin in the kingdom unless we followed him today in seeking to bind the thinking of the flesh in our own lives. Our struggle against sin is part of our preparation for the kingdom age, but the promise of the word is that we can accomplish in Christ what we cannot accomplish in our own strength. How thankful we should be, brothers and sisters, for the wisdom of the word and for the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in such a powerful and memorable parable as this one of the binding of the strong man and the spoiling of his house. In the words of a hymn that puts it this way, soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armour on Strong in the strength which God supplies through his beloved Son, strong in the Lord of hosts, and in his mighty power, who in the strength of Jesus trusts, is more than conqueror.